Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore, long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on July 27th of 2014, under the headline, Tillamook Burns sprang from logging crew's unwise gamble. Here we go. The morning of August 14, 1933, was a morning to break a Jippo logger's heart. It was a clear, warm, dry day, the kind of weather that shuts down logging operations long before quitting time. A warm, dry breeze was blowing out of the northeast. The woods crackled like dry tinder under the logger's corks. As they'd known it would, the day got hotter. By noon, Gales Creek Canyon, near Forest Grove, was starting to empty out as logging operations knocked off for the day, heading back to their bunkhouses to wait for the dew of the next morning to make the woods safe again. All but one operation, that is. One lone logging crew situated at the end of a spur line on a log deck surrounded by mountains of slash decided to stick it out for just a few more hours try to get one last rail car loaded and on its way out of the woods before quitting for the day. It was an old-school, high-lead, steam-powered, drag-line logging show, of course. It was, after all, the early 1930s. They were using a steam donkey engine to yard the sticks to the landing by brute grinding force. That friction generated heat, lots of heat, and it was not uncommon to see the logs smoking a little when they arrived at the landing to be loaded. The loggers kept their shovels and pickaxes ready, smothering small fires when they broke out, as they occasionally did. It was all in a day's work, and ordinarily nothing much to worry about. But today was different, and they must have known it. They were taking a huge chance for those extra logs, a high-stakes gamble. And around 1 p.m., they lost their bet. Grinding across a well-seasoned cedar snag, the big log they were yarding started smoking, and then suddenly the pulverized cedar punkwood was on fire. A thin line of white smoke went up, thickening quickly as the shout rang out, FIRE! All thought of the partly empty rail car vanished as the loggers sprinted, shovels in hand, to try to undo what their foolishness had wrought. But it was too late. They had no water. The forest was too dry, and there weren't enough of them, and the acres of slash piles guaranteed that the fire would get a grand start. They had lighted off the first Tillamook burn, and Oregon would never be the same again. Quote, The Tillamook fire took the life out of twelve and one-half billion feet of fine old timber, wrote author Stuart Holbrook, a one-time logger and one of the firefighters who battled it. I saw it burn, and I never expect to see another sight like it. As the unlucky loggers toiled away with their shovels and picks, desperately trying to slow the fire's spread, they had no way of knowing what kind of evil genie they had let loose upon the land. In Oregon and Washington at the time, the gold standard of bad forest fires cut loose in 1902, when a bone-dry early September saw hundreds of fast-moving fires breaking out all over the two states. In Washington, dozens of people died. 
chased down and roasted alive by the leaping flames. It was known as the Occult Burn, killed 38 people and half a million acres of virgin old-growth timber, and it dusted Portland with a half-inch layer of ash. The fire that was breaking out now would soon rival the Occult Burn in size and ferocity, but happily, not in fatalities. One of the legacies of the Occult Burn, and a subsequent big blow-up in Idaho and Montana in 1910, was a network of U.S. Forest Service lookout towers situated in strategic spots around the state, from which lonely watchers kept an eye on the surrounding forests, looking for smoke. Shortly after 1 p.m., the watcher on Saddle Mountain noticed a thin smudge rising from near Gales Creek and got on the telephone to report it. As a result, within minutes, reinforcements were racing to the scene. By late afternoon, hundreds of men were swarming over the fire, including the exhausted loggers, whose superhuman efforts to quell the fire they had loosed is probably the reason they are never mentioned by name in any source I've been able to find. Then, at 6 p.m., word came that another fire had broken out, a little way downwind from the Gales Creek burn. The dry, whipping wind had picked up a burning branch and carried it a mile or two and then dropped it south of Wilson River Road. Crews were brought in from everywhere to fight the blaze. Loggers, professional firefighters, civilian conservation corps crew members, anyone who could help. They felled trees to form fire breaks. They dug broad fire lines to hem the blaze in. Progress was swift. The wind was calming down. And by Sunday morning, August 20th, firefighters were thinking it would soon be over. Then the wind picked back up. And then, suddenly, the fire was blazing in the crowns of the trees, moving from tree to tree as swiftly as the wind. It leaped the laboriously cleared fire breaks with heartbreaking ease and rocketed on, ever westward, eating into the biggest tract of roadless old-growth timber in the coast range. The crews redoubled their efforts. New, broader fire lines were cut. They hoped to quarantine the fire at roughly 40,000 acres. By Thursday, August 24th, they dared hope this would work. The wind had died down again. Humidity was up. The firebreaks were broad and clear. But the next day, though, something happened. Humidity plummeted. At daybreak, the humidity was a shockingly low 26%. Tentative gusts of wind coming out of the east from over the eastern Oregon high desert told Oregon State Forester Lynn Cronmiller what had happened and what was about to happen and what he needed to do if they were going to avoid an even bigger body count than they had seen in 1902. We'll talk about what Cronmiller did, and what his actions saved dozens of people from, next week. Key sources in this story included works by Stuart Holbrook, Doug Decker, and ForestHistory.org. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulplet Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. 
So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.